So if there's if you've been around tapestry a while, you know that um, I do not um, I do not follow holidays as far as sermons goes. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I've really been so unaware of holidays that I've really messed up those sermon days. Um, the only ones that I actually give into are Easter and Christmas because, I mean, there's just really no way um, to not address those things um, as a pastor. And so today I have um, uh, upheld that tradition. I do not have a Mother's Day sermon. But before I jump back into our um, talk on the Bible, I, I just want to um, I just want to acknowledge uh, many of the different women in the room today. Um, if you are a mother... Um, I know that it is really difficult. And I know that every mother has had those moments to where they feel like a failure and don't know what they're doing and are going to permanently damage their children <laughs> for the rest of their lives, <laughs> if, not, if not just cost them a lot of money in therapy. <laughs> um, but to you this morning... Um, I want to say that you, you are enough, and we honor you this morning. For any of you who have stepped into the role of a mother in somebody's life, what an amazing gift you are, and we honor you this morning. For any of you who perhaps desired to be a mother, and for one reason or another, it just has not happened for you yet. We honor you. And you are enough. And I would say that if I were to sit down and evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of our church, I would say that we have a lot of weaknesses. But we also have some pretty good strengths. But I think I would list the women of our congregation as our greatest strength. And so I just want to acknowledge all of you today and say thank you so much for who you are, what you've contributed both to us as a church and to the lives of all of those that you come into contact with. Thank you. Okay, now on to the Bible. <clears throat> the reason that so many people um, walk away from their faith when they get older is because they know Bible stories, but they don't know the story of the Bible. And that is their understanding of um, what the Bible is never progressed beyond coloring pages and bedtime stories. Um, and, and this is a big deal because understanding how we got the Bible is nearly as important as what's actually in the Bible because the backstory is what sheds light on the story itself. And many of us were given the Bible, you know, in whatever form. Some of us were given physical Bibles that, you know, if you're, if you're old school, you've got, you know, the fake leather cover with the gold embossed name down in the corner. Anybody got a gold embossed name? Right? I mean, that was, whew, that was the thing once you got that. Um, the thing that made those bad was if you were like me and you just left things everywhere, like people knew, whew, Andy doesn't care about his Bible. He just leaves it everywhere. Um, but um, for most of us, the 
people who introduced us to or gave us the Bible, there's a pretty good chance they didn't really know the story of the Bible either. I mean, they knew stories in the Bible, but not the story of the Bible. Now, part of the challenge for all of that is because our first Bible, or the first Bible, is very different from the Bible that was our first Bible. Um, When we got our Bible, it was chaptered and versed and footnoted and mapped and wrapped and all like, you know, it was all just right there. Now, if I were to hand out three by five cards to all of you, and I were to say, I want you to write down where you think the Bible came from. However many of you there are in this room, that's how many different answers we would have on where the Bible came from, right? And there's all sorts of crazy ideas out there about this topic and, and people have debated it and argued over it and, and all of this. But, but if you have no idea where it came from and you have no idea what the story behind it is, it is really easy to just dismiss it because you don't know what it is, right? But Jesus, listen, Jesus, before we get started, like from the very beginning, And hopefully this isn't news to any of you, but to some people, this would be news. Jesus didn't write any of the Bible. He didn't. There's some people that don't know that, but Jesus is the reason that we have the Bible, right? Because the story of the Bible, when you go back, and I'm not talking about the story in the Bible, the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible doesn't begin with Genesis, It begins with with Jesus. And it begins with uh, him being discovered to have been alive after he was dead. That's where the story of the Bible starts because without the resurrection, the Bible would not exist. We would not hold it in our hands. We would not be meeting here today because the people who wrote the New Testament sacrificed their lives to get the message of the resurrection out of Jerusalem and out of the first century. And they didn't do it because of what he taught. They didn't do it because of the miracles. They didn't do it because of the people who followed him. They did it because of the resurrection. Were it not for the resurrection, there would have been nothing to write about. And the reason that there wouldn't have been anything to write about is because Jesus made too many claims about himself. And the fact that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus' dead body down off of the cross proved that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. He was not who his followers hoped that he would be. But when the tomb was found empty, those who had run just days before for fear of their lives, flooded the streets of Jerusalem, the very place where the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus took place. And the church began. And so the events around a resurrected Jesus were extremely important to his first century followers because that was why they were still followers. And knowing the importance of the event, that is how we end up with four different manuscripts of the life of Jesus, which is a phenomenal fact because you have no idea how many events in history that we all take for granted that do not have the original documents to back them up. 
We have a whole lot of writings that reference other writings that aren't here anymore because they've gotten old and disintegrated or have been lost. And so we've got references to documents, but there is an astounding number of historical events that we just take for granted that there are no original supporting documents for. And so the idea that we've got not one, not two, count them with me, not three, but four separate original documents of this historical event is absolutely amazing. And we have these accounts for one reason, because Jesus rose from the dead. But it's important to know that after Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, after they were written, there was still no Bible. There wasn't. There was just four accounts of the life of Jesus that the early church held in extremely high regard. They held those things in such high regard, they were willing to risk their lives for the spread of the information in them. So after the resurrection, Paul and the others, they, they left the area of Judea, which was the Southern area of the nation of Israel. They left Judea and they began to tell Gentiles, which is non-Jewish people. They began to tell Gentiles about Jesus. And the biggest struggle that the Gentiles had, Gentile people had, whenever they would hear this story, the biggest struggle that they had, because they would hear it and they'd be like, wow, this story is amazing. And they would want to embrace Jesus as their savior, but giving up the idea, giving up the idea that they and everybody around them grew up with, that there was, that there was only one God, giving up the idea that there wasn't multiple gods, that was really challenging to the Gentile people that heard this message. Now, this isn't a big deal to us because, you know, we're not polytheists. But this would be the equivalent of somebody today who believes in God, all of a sudden just deciding, okay, I'm gonna decide I'm not gonna believe in God now. Or the vice versa, somebody who doesn't believe in God, maybe thinks we're all crazy, maybe thinks we're just wrong, but we're good intentioned. But somebody who doesn't believe in God, all of a sudden just saying, okay, well, I'm gonna believe in it now. That's how difficult it would have been for all of these Gentile people who were hearing this amazing message, but attached to this message was there is only one God. It would have been extremely difficult for them to accept that idea and be like, oh, okay, well, there's not multiple gods, right? It was unimaginable. And it's also important to note that in that time, people just didn't leave one religion to join another religion, because the way it worked back then was each area and each nation kind of had its own God structure. And so if you were from that, you had your gods and sometimes your gods were your personal family gods and they were literally little idols that you would have. And so if you moved somewhere, you'd pack up your gods and you'd go to the next place. And if they had gods, you would maybe start picking up some of their gods and just kind of accumulated these idea of God. So there wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to leave being a Christian now to become a Muslim. The, way, the idea of switching religions like that, that that's, a, that's a more modern thing. That's not how it worked um, back then. And, and so this was an obstacle for many, many, many Gentile people who wanted to embrace the idea of Jesus and wanted to accept what he had done. But the idea of a single God seemed very novel and very new. 
Now, th- th- this is a really important part of the journey because when, when the Gentile people and Gentile scholars, when they became enamored with a specific Jewish person who was, it's not a trick question, who was the Jewish person they became enamored with? Yeah, 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 yeah. See, you guys are smart. You're with me. Be bold. Yeah, when they became enamored, um, when they became enamored with Jesus, they also become very interested in the Jewish scriptures. Because as they became enamored with this Jewish person, they were like, hmm, what else has been going on with the Jewish people? Right? And so, <clears throat> and so as they began to look, they began to embrace the idea of Jesus, but they had to get over this thing because the Gentiles, they weren't interested in Jewish scriptures before this point because the Jewish people were, were very, um, they kept to themselves. They ate different foods. They had different rules. They didn't really interact with people. They refused to work on the Sabbath. They wouldn't intermarry with other people who weren't Jews. So, so there was very little interest from outside cultures into the Jewish culture until the story of Jesus began to spread. And when they discovered the law and the prophets, which we now call the Old Testament, um, when they discovered the law and the prophets was the backstory to the Jesus story, whew, they became interested. And this became a problem later on because they were interested in finding Jesus in the text of the Jewish people. But the Jewish people themselves did not find Jesus in that text. And so this kind of became a little bit of an issue. And to their amazement, they discovered that the Jews whose religion, when you go back to when the, the religions were formed and when the idea of all the different gods were made and created, that they, they found that the Jews whose religion was older than the religion of both Rome and Greece, they found that they had always, from the beginning, held this idea of a single God. Now, here's something interesting. Christians in the first and second century were persecuted by the Romans. And they were persecuted by the Romans um, for two reasons. One, they did not believe in the pantheon of gods. Two, they would not acknowledge Caesar as a deity. But the Jewish people never acknowledged the pantheon of the gods and never acknowledged Caesar as a deity. But yet the Jewish people were kind of just let to be. Outside of the regular, like, we're conquering you thing, specifically in the context of the religion, the Jewish people were let to be. And so the question that you should ask is, well, why did the, why did the Roman Empire give the Jewish people a pass, but not the Christians? Well, what is the difference? And it was because the Romans honored ancient things. They did. They knew that the Jewish faith was older than the stories of Romulus and Remus, that it was older than the pantheon of the Greek gods, that it was older than any of their religions. So the Jewish people got a pass. The Christians were some kind of weird new startup cult. We're not honoring that. We don't want anything to do with that. So when the Gentile scholars began exploring the Jewish scriptures, they were shocked to discover that the oldest religion that anybody ever knew had recognized from the beginning that there was only a single God. And the, re- the implications of this are huge. 
Because since ancient times, every single culture had it wrong. And the, jo- the Jews had known this from the beginning. And so when the, when the Gentile scholars opened up that first scroll of the, of the law and the prophets, the Jewish scriptures, when they opened up, here it is, what they found. Genesis 1.1, very beginning. In the beginning, God. Now, this is a phrase that you've undoubtedly heard a million times, right? You've probably heard it argued about quite a few times. You've probably heard its truth and its authorship debated and discussed, but you cannot miss the original context because this, this statement, in the beginning, God, singular, this was shocking to the ancient world. Because when they opened up the Jewish scriptures, what they expected to find was what you found in every other religion that existed in the world. They expected to find gods, not God. And the word Genesis in the Greek is a word that means the origin. And we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, in the, eight, in the 19th and 20th century, um, archeological discoveries and finds created doubt regarding the origins of the account of creation in Genesis. Uh, our archeologists had found some things and here, here's where the doubts came from. They found Egyptian, Sumerian, um, Canaanite and Babylonian writings. And all of those writings had creation texts within them. They had their version of how creation took place. And a surface reading of those texts appeared to be very similar to the Hebrew writings of Genesis. And so as they looked at them, they said, well, why is is the Hebrew text any more valid than these other ancient texts that we've come across. But what you need to know is that that view, while for a while it held a lot of weight that, oh, well, you know, the Hebrew text just borrowed from a bunch of the other cultural texts and it all just kind of, it's a piece together and there it is. That view um, has been pretty much abandoned in scholarship. There are a couple people that maybe still hang on to it, but it's been pretty much abandoned because not only does Genesis not borrow from the other creation myths, but it stands in a startling contrast to them because Genesis presents a worldview unto itself. And it's a worldview that is ahead of its time. It would, (laughs) we're still trying to catch up to its worldview. In fact, the modern scientific community would not begin to catch up with the first statement in Genesis until 1927, when a Belgian priest first put forward the theory that we would go on to call the Big Bang Theory. And that was the idea that the universe had a beginning, that the universe had a beginning right? Because since the time of Aristotle, which was was about four centuries BC, since that time, all the way since, 
people had assumed that the universe just was, that it had always existed, that matter just was. Now you get into a lot of thinkers that think, oh, well, matter just isn't. It's all in your head. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And there's, we, can, we can talk about some weird things. But in general, the concept was that the universe had just always existed, right? It had always been there. I mean, Einstein himself embraced this idea that it had always been there. But in 1964, with the discovery of cosmic background radiation, how many of you remember learning about that in school? Yeah, so... It was this thing that I'm not going to explain to you right now. But when that was discovered in 1964, the view that the universe always just had been was immediately abandoned because it proved beyond a doubt that it had not. And scientists mostly agree that, that in a trillion of a trillionth second, like I can't even get you to comprehend how little of a time it was. In a little instant of a second, the universe expanded from something smaller than the size of the pebble. How small? We don't know, but smaller than that. Well, smaller down to nothing? I don't know. Maybe. But it, in that short amount of time, expanded from that into the mass, astronomically large thing that we know is the universe today. Or maybe in the words of Genesis, in the beginning. Because everything that has a beginning has a cause. Now there are some things that may not have a beginning and so may not have a cause. So the debate today is not, did the universe have a beginning as it was a debate throughout so much of history. The debate today is around, is it a personal, purposeful, intentional cause to the universe? That's where the discussion has shifted. Now, back to Genesis. Um, the significance of what comes next is lost on us. And the reason why is because <clears throat> the point that Moses is trying to make in Genesis um, is one that is already assumed by us. And we, we lose um, the, the significance of the idea and the point that he was making because he made it so well that it's just an assumption for us now. His argument ultimately succeeded. But Moses was writing to an ancient group of people who all they knew was slavery and the phenomenon of the Greek, of the Greek gods. So Moses is trying to help them kind of narrow their focus, right? Narrow it down and become believers in the one true God. And in Genesis, this is so important. In Genesis, Moses is not primarily trying to explain how God created the heavens and the earth. And this is where we get mixed up a lot. Because what Moses was trying to do was make the point that God created the heavens and the earth. Not God's, God. And so he says, in the beginning, God created, not Egypt's Amon-Re, not Babylon's Marmaduke, which if you're not familiar with the story of Marmaduke, whoo, man, that's a story. You should probably go and read about that. It's pretty, let me just give you a little, let me just give you a little teaser about the story of Marmaduke coming from the Babylons. <clears throat> 
Babylonians. He rode into an epic battle on his two steeds named Slaughterer and Merciless. I mean, how good of a story is that to start out? And you might say, well, Andy, how did he ride in on two steeds? That's a great question. He was standing with one under each foot and the reins in his hands riding into battle on Slaughterer and Merciless. And after defeating the goddess Timot by shooting an arrow into her mouth and through the back of her neck, he split her body in two. And with the upper half of her body, he created the heavens. And with the lower half of her body, he created the earth. Not quite the same as the Genesis creation story. (laughs) But man, how cool would Sunday school have been as a Babylonian kid, right? (laughs) Can you imagine the flannel boards of that? Yeah. Anyway, but in Genesis, we find something extraordinarily different, right? Not even close. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you go back and you read all of these other creation stories, these creation myths, Genesis is nothing like the Egyptian myth or the Canaanite creation myth or the Babylonian creation myth where gods are at odds with themselves and gods are warring and fighting and they create other gods out of body parts and body fluids. It's real, man, you should, just for entertainment's sake, should read some of that stuff. It's really something. But then this, this, this brings us to the next epic statement that Moses makes. And this is a statement that is ahead of its time. Because in the Babylonian creation myth, which is found in the Enuma Elish, it takes five books before you get to the creation of mankind, right? And, and mankind was created for the specific purpose to serve the lazy gods. So after becoming king of the gods, Marduk says the following. He says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage I will create. And he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. Literally, I'm going to create a savage person to serve the gods so that they can lay around and do nothing. See, in all of the other creation stories that exist from all of the different cultures, mankind is an afterthought to lighten the load of the gods. But Genesis is different because because of the way the ancient people viewed the gods and the actions of the gods and viewed the way that mankind was created under the gods because of this perspective. Individuals had no value and no rights. Women had no status. There was no intrinsic value to be found in anyone. And the violence and the injustice of the gods was reflected in the violence and the injustice of the human leaders because the kings of the time were essentially just acting like their fathers in the heavens. 
And then you come to Genesis. And it stands in stark contrast. And Genesis has no parallels. And it is the oldest of the ancient religions and a concept that the human race continues to struggle with to this day. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. So in other words, in the Genesis story of creation, mankind is the pinnacle of creation, not the afterthought. Which means the dignity of every man, woman, and child was established from the very beginning. This was unheard of. This was a mindset that ancient people outside of the Jewish faith, it was difficult for them to grasp. It was difficult for them to let go of these other ideas and how it all came about. And none of the religions or the pantheons of gods that would follow would establish this kind of idea or thought. But there's more. And what comes next is even more unimaginable to the Gentile people. And not only was it unimaginable at the time that Moses wrote it, but it would have been unimaginable 500 years later, 1,000 years later, 1,500, 2,000 years later. God said, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule over. Not so that they may worship, not so that they make, may make idols out of, not so that they may deify, but that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky over the livestock and all of the wild animals. In the very beginning, God tells the, Jesus, the Jewish people, you will make no idols. You will have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. And I'm telling you, this was in such contrast to the pantheon of gods that they had just escaped from. God says, you will not worship nature. You will rule nature. You are stewards of this world, which if we're honest with ourselves is an idea that we are still trying to wrestle to the ground and have not really comprehended our role and have failed at it pretty spectacularly. But from the very beginning, God established something different. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image, unthinkable. In the image of God, he created them. Just to reiterate, male and female, he created them. Listen, Jesus was the first in a cultural context. Jesus was the first one to elevate the status of women. But in the very beginning, God gave women dignity that the world is still trying to catch up to today that the world has not grasped. Only recently has, has civilizations around the globe begun to wrestle with this idea of dignity. But it was there from the very beginning. Now, our problem with this is that we get distracted. Right, we read Genesis and we think, oh, Moses is explaining how God created the world. But come on, be, be really intellectually honest with yourself for just a moment. How can anyone, especially in ancient times, know or understand exactly how God created 
the world. Moses' main point was not how God created the world. His point was that God created the world. But we get so focused and distracted by it, like, okay, what's the timing and the order of the creation account and how does all of that work? And Moses is like, no, 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 wait. You're missing the bomb that I am dropping from the very beginning. You're, you're missing this. He introduced this radical, different, idea, this unparalleled worldview that would eventually become the foundation for the golden rule. And if you look at nature, golden rule is not reflected in nature. Heck, you look at human nature and the golden rule is very rarely reflected in human nature. But the idea was introduced from the very beginning. You are not a means to an end. You are to rule nature, not worship it. I'm going to make you as close to me as I possibly can in my image. Which means every single person that you come face to face with bears the image of their creator. So you need to be careful how you treat them. And all of this, at the very beginning, a God who gives us the ability to choose and a God who respects our decisions. And then God does what is probably the most ungodly thing that anybody could possibly think of. He lets us make our choice. And then he immediately goes to work to reverse the consequences of mankind's choice to choose against him. It's incredible. Genesis 1 gives us the meta-narrative, the big picture story of our lives. It's the ultimate context for human existence. It gives us a monotheistic worldview, a view that answers life's most important questions. Not really the how questions, but the why questions. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are you here? Why do you matter? And that is absolutely incredible. So back to the first century Gentiles that are realizing all of this. They realized that the Jews had it right all along, which of course only fueled their interest in the Jewish scriptures which we now call the Old Testament. And they moved very quickly to adopt the Jewish scriptures into the Christian scriptures. And thus the stage was set for the inclusion of the Old Testament in our current Bibles. But that inclusion would not be without its struggles. So please join us next week now that I set the beginning with Genesis, we're gonna talk next week about the Old Testament and the Jewish scriptures and how they fit in to the New Testament. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is my prayer that every single one of us can begin to grasp the magnitude of what we hold in our hands when we're holding a Bible. It has become so commonplace to us that Lord, we do 
not appreciate what it is. But Lord, I pray that begins to change. Lord, spark an interest, spark a desire inside of us to begin to unravel and begin to understand just the greatness of the documents that we are privileged enough to have. Lord, I thank you that from the very beginning of it, Lord, that you established us as the pinnacle of creation, that you thought enough of us to create us in your image and that you thought enough of us to when we promptly messed it up to come in pursuit of us. Lord, I am overwhelmed by your holy word. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for everything you do to help us to progress and to grow in our relationship with you. Lord, keep us safe till we can meet again. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for being out. Look forward to next week as we continue discovering this amazing thing called the scriptures. It's